You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the latest episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast today is Stephanie Hanaro. Stephanie lives in Mexico City, but she was quarantining in Acapulco about a week ago on July 17th when we had this conversation. Stephanie writes for El Economista every week. She is a geopolitical analyst, professor, and consultant. Um, she's also a member of the Mexican Council on Foreign Affairs and holds a master's degree in geopolitics, territory, and security from King's College London. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Stephanie. A reminder to listeners, this podcast appears every other Monday, so please sign up, subscribe, leave a comment, and share widely. Also, we've added timestamps so that you can go directly to the parts of the conversation that you're most interested in if you don't want to sit here and listen to the entire conversation. My hope is eventually to add subtitles, maybe even subtitles in foreign translations, but I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves yet. If you have any thoughts about the podcast or you want to learn more about the services that Perch Perspectives provides, please visit our website, www.perchperspectives.com. There's a free newsletter that you can sign up for there, or you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. Can't promise we'll reply to everything, but I guarantee you I read everything and might even give you a shout out on the podcast. So thanks so much for listening and we'll see you out there. Take care, wear your masks. So when we talk about Los Soya being extradited to Mexico, there are three things we have to think about. First of all, is the connection with Spain. President Lopez Obrador has attacked a lot Spanish enterprises. And he talked a lot about us being conquered. He says, we are not a colony anymore. We are an independent country and we have to stop making the crown richer. That's what he says. And I'm literally translating his words. And Mexico is important, very important for many Spanish enterprises. We have most of our hotel industry being run by Spanish companies, but also Spanish banks. And I think the relation with Mexico is very important because global banks such as BBVA, Banco Bilbao Vizcaya, makes 40% of their global revenue from Mexico. Also, when it comes to local geopolitics, there are two facts we have to take into account. First of all, is that in 2021, we have a a major electoral movement. We have 13 states choosing a new governor and 3,200 popular positions being chosen that day. And President Lopez Obrador wants to gain majority of our deputy chamber because he wants his referendum to pass. And this referendum is trying to change the Mexican constitution because he wants to ask in 2022 to the Mexican people if he's doing a good job or if he's not doing a good job, then he should stay or he should go. And when we look back to other Latin American countries, We have the example of Venezuela. And that one thing President Chavez did before he changed the constitution for re-election. Also, we have to think about Tabasco, his home state. Tabasco was an oil booming state. 
in the 1970s. And he wants to take back all that glory back to Tabasco. And with energy being run by foreign enterprises and also renewable energy getting into the game, that's not going to be so easy to achieve. And it's important for him. Yeah, that's a great summary of, of Lasoya. Um, I, I think I mentioned to you before we started recording here that uh, I, I read recently that Tabasco is the New Orleans of Mexico, but I think you said that that's not a, is that a great comparison? Would you, would you compare the two? Because I'm, I'm here in New Orleans, so of course I'm wondering if, if the comparison has any validity. Well, I love New Orleans and, I, and I've never been to Tabasco, but I think there are many, many issues that have to be solved before Tabasco can be compared to New Orleans. But when you look at it from the folkloric part, yes, they are share they both share a folkloric history. I think so. Well and it does it does I've been reading Mexican history lately and it does seem like every time a Mexican leader gets in trouble, they end up in New Orleans somehow. Like Juarez was in New Orleans for a while and apparently like a lot of leaders sent their kids to get educated in New Orleans for a while. So I, I think there is some kind of I can't put my finger maybe there's something about the admiration of France instead of Spain. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's something in there, some kind of similarity that I'm groping around for. Well, but this time was different. When Lopez Obrador was in trouble, he went to Washington. <laughs> oh, you, you, well, that, that's his, it's amazing to me that that was his first trip abroad. Uh, first of all, it's doubly amazing to me. I can't think of another global leader and I know he does this in Mexico, so it's I'm I'm talking as an American here, but I can't imagine an American president flying coach, and I certainly can't imagine an American president connect taking a connecting flight and during a global pandemic. I mean, I, I guess that I guess that Mexicans have gotten used to this sort of political showmanship from from Lopez Obrador, but I, I have to tell you, it's it's a it's pretty remarkable. I can't think of another foreign leader that would do that. Me neither do I, and I think this whole trip was a major, it was a glorified photo shoot because it was so little significant content. Uh, the new USMCA treaty was already signed and our president didn't have an independent agenda. He only wanted to take photos with Trump and major Mexican businessmen. I, I do think it's fair to say though that, I mean, President Trump was so tough on Mexico on the campaign trail. You know, Mexico was going to pay for the wall and Mexico was sending rapists across the border. I mean, he said a lot of a lot of nasty things about Mexico, I would call it. And um, it's pretty amazing that Lopez Obrador seems to have avoided a lot of that. I mean, our, our neighbors to the north with the Trudeau government seem to have gotten a lot more of Trump's angry side as he's been in office versus Lopez Obrador, who seems to have managed the relationship with Trump pretty well, all things considered. I, I think you have to consider that a success so far, at least in his, in his administration, right? There are many things to consider. First of all, uh, I have read that Donald Trump calls our president Juan Trump. <laughs> he, he is Lopez Obrador of a Mexican version of himself. Hmm. And most of all, they share the same ideological code. They're both fighting against corruption. They both hate traditional media. They always say that they are the victims of a political witch hunt. And they both are anti-establishment. So they share many things. I think they like each other. And they are just playing with each other. 
because our president started his candidate campaign when he was running for president on our northern border, saying he would not allow Trump to humiliate Mexico more. And what did he end up doing? Saying Donald Trump is my friend. There's no logic in that. The only logic that I can think about that one, for Donald Trump, it means both. He mentioned the 36 million of Mexico Americans that live there. And of course, he needs states like Texas, Arizona, Florida to support him for his reelection. And on the Mexican side, it means that he has to pay he has to pay the bills. President Trump supported Lopez Obrador when we had a problem with the OPEC because we couldn't uh, accomplish the shortage they wanted regarding an oil production. So Donald Trump helped him. And now it was payback time. And also, there's no much political margin you can have when almost 84% of your exports go to the U.S., Yes. And uh, I mean, Mexico's economy is so dependent on the United States. There's really not a lot that any Mexican leader could do. Do you have a sense of of how Lopez Obrador would deal with a Biden administration? Because, I mean, if we're just looking at the polls today, it's not looking very good for President Trump. So do you feel like Lopez Obrador would be able to, to, to deal with a Biden administration? Do you think that that's better for Mexico? Is that worse for Mexico? Is it just about the same thing? How, how are you feeling about that right now? I think a Biden, uh, the Mexican relation with Biden uh, would be difficult. First of all, Biden and, and AMLO do not share the same ideology. They are no both anti-establishment, so they're different. And I get a sense that we're going to experience the same that happened in 1992 when our president Salinas de Gortari uh, went to the U.S. to reunite with President Bush and the Prime Minister of Canada because the NAFTA has been just signed. What happened? Bush didn't got, didn't got elected. Clinton got elected. And then the Democrats uh, sent the treaty to revision because some labor things were not quite clear, and they delayed uh, the treaty for almost one year. So I think one thing like that might just happen. And also, we have to remember that what Clinton was negotiating, uh, was negotiating the NAFTA, Biden opposed many things with Clinton. He made things difficult for Clinton. So I think Biden doesn't like much Mexico. Yeah, I don't know about that. I think you're definitely right that Biden is, well, first of all, Biden is definitely part of the establishment. He is not anti-establishment in any way. He's been around for God knows how many decades now. Um, his position on trade has shifted a lot over time. I think a lot will depend on um, what happens, not just with the presidential election, but with the congressional election. Um, I, I don't think that the Democrats are going to sweep both the House and the Senate. But if they did, for instance, well, then I think you might see Biden behave however he wants. But as long as there is still a Republican, at least one Republican House of Congress, it's, it's going to be hard for him to do much on trade. And I think he's probably going to think more about uh, trade with Pacific nations and thinking about how to reorganize the TPP rather than going after this new NAFTA. But I take your point. It's a, it's a point of uncertainty. And 
we can't dismiss the fact that perhaps Biden's going to want in and, and, and just change everything that Trump did and overturn it. And that would obviously not be great from a Mexican perspective. Yeah, of course. And we have to take into account that uh, Mexico is for the second time interfering in U.S. elections. The first time was when Trump came to visit Enrique Peña Nieto when he was still a candidate. And now Trump is running for, for a re-election and our president is going to the U.S. So that's not something very politically wise to do. Trudeau didn't do it. Trudeau stayed in Canada and just talked to President Trump over the phone. Yes, although, I mean, the reason that Trudeau didn't want to come down was because President Trump was threatening to reimpose um, tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum on the farcical basis that Canada poses a national security threat, which we, we don't have to we, we don't have to give me an aneurysm by going into how ridiculous that is. But I mean, President Trump has been much friendlier to Lopez Obrador than he has been to Trudeau. He makes he he mocks Trudeau publicly. Trudeau mocks him publicly. They have a very, very bad relationship. I'm not sure that Canada U.S. relations have been this bad in my lifetime. I can't really think of a time in my own life when they've been worse than this. Whereas, as you say, it, it seems like Trump and Lopez Obrador, somehow they speak the same language. There is something about them that they're able to get on the same page. And as we've seen with Trump, if you have that sort of personal connection with him, he's going to try and do things for you, even if he campaigns against you on the campaign trail like he did on Mexico. Of course. And trade has been Trump's weapon of choice when he wants to get something out of the world. And one thing I can stop thinking about is about uh, the speeches Trump and Lopez Obrador pronounced on, on the day of the visit. They talk a lot about the region. They talk about the North American region and how much of the, of the global GDP that we produced during the 1960s. I think it was pretty much close to 40%. And Lopez Obrador talked about the need to improve the global su supply chain and that we do not need to go far away to get what we need. In other words, that means China. And when you take a look at the USMCA, there's chapter 32 when it is mentioned that none of the three parties can have a free trade treatment without economy that is not considered to be a free trade economy. In other words, China. Yeah, I think that's super important. But I mean, the, 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 the issue that seems to be animating the Trump administration more than any other issue right now is 5G. And there, I mean, Canada has not come out completely against Huawei and completely against having Chinese gear in its telecom networks. Uh, but it seems to me that AMLO's been a little more coy about that. It, do you think that Mexico is going to talk to Huawei and Mexico is going to allow Chinese companies in their 5G rollout network? Or or do you think that's going to become a point of contention between Trump and, and Lopez Obrador eventually? Well, I don't think uh, Mexico is going gonna, is gonna to talk to Huawei if the U.S. has has problems with that. Our economy is so dependent that we don't have a big margin to decide what to do or what not to do. But one thing that I think is uh, very interesting is that during the Peña and during the Peña Nieto administration, they have a program that was called uh, Red Amplia. So they tried to get all the country with internet, and they were starting to build the five-year 
uh, infrastructure. Of course, the the licitation was won by a Mexican enterprise, but the technology they use was Chinese, and it is Huawei. We haven't got to that point or Mexico has to decide, but I think when we get to that point, Mexico is going to follow the US the same way that Boris Johnson in the UK did. At first, he didn't want to go to leave Huawei out of the question in the UK because China has a major uh, implications in the UK's economy, but now he's changing his mind. And I think that's the same thing that's going to happen with Mexico. That's interesting. But there's also another issue that it seems to me that Mexico has not really been in lockstep with the United States on, which is Venezuela. I mean, this Trump administration has been very, very, um, you know, they're not being shy about the fact that they want to get rid of Maduro and that they want Guaido in office. Whereas, again, Lopez Obrador has has not taken that line. He's not willing, I think, to even recognize Guaido unless I'm wrong about that. So and but it also seems like Mexico you know, hasn't, hasn't really gotten any anger from the United States for that position. So maybe it's the, why do you think that Venezuela flies under the radar that way? This is very interesting because Mexico just got a position at the UN's Security Council. And in that position, Mexico can, can veto a US initiative to intervene in Venezuela or support it. So Mexico becomes is strategic in that sense. Uh, also, we have to think about that, even that, uh, if you listen to President Chavez, uh, to President Nicolás Maduro, uh, make a public discourse, and you listen to López Obrador, is the same discursive code. And, he, and Maduro was also in our president's, uh, when our president took power, he was here. So that means, even in he says that he doesn't interfere in domestic affairs of other countries, there might be a line. Uh, but Trump, I think Trump notices this, and he has uh, he has put a light on it because when it comes to drug cartels, uh, just when we received Evo Morales here, we we gave political asylum. Mm-hmm. Just after that, Trump declared Mexican drug cartels as terrorists. And if the U.S. declares terrorist groups, they can intervene in that country. So when you look at it that way, we are also tied in there. So I don't think uh, Mexico is going to be against the U.S. uh, when it comes to Venezuela. Or maybe Mexico can be uh, a diplomatic actors, not being so aggressive, but trying to solve the humanitarian crisis. Yeah, there might also be something to the fact that, you know, President Trump has surrounded himself with a lot of different folks, and some of them might be stronger on Venezuela than he is, whereas he has generally avoided that kind of intervention sometimes, although sometimes he changes his mind. It's really hard to to sort of predict where Trump is going to be, but there might be something about that. But you touched on on the drug cartels and on the, on the drug war in Mexico. And I think we have to talk about that a little bit. Um, I hesitate to talk about it because I feel like at least from an, from an American perspective, if you open up an American newspaper and you read about Mexico, 
usually it's about some new grisly cartel killing or there's nothing in the U.S. newspaper about Mexico. Like those seem to be the two ways that Americans consume information. And I, I don't want to bring up the, the cartel stuff and not recognize that there's also a lot of other stuff happening in Mexico. But I don't I don't know how not to at this point, because we had that attempted assassination on the police chief in Mexico City a couple weeks ago. Uh, we had the news today that Lopez Obrador was giving control of the ports away from customs and having the Mexican armed forces take care of that, the army and the Navy specifically. Um, in terms of homicide rates, I mean, things are at, I, I don't know if they're all time highs, but the data is on, on, on homicides is that they're up very much. And it seems that this is one of the real weak points of Lopez Obrador's promises. He was going to end corruption and try and be, bring some kind of modicum of peace and stability and attack the, the real economic issues that were causing violence. And I, I mean, I know it's kind of unfair to judge him on two years of that, but things don't seem to be going so well on that front. Do you feel that there or is it just sort of accepted that, no, this is this is how it works, like nothing is better and nothing is worse? What can I say? I mean, our, our president uh, reunites with the family of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. He reunites with them. Um, he, re he publicly greeted his mother and received a letter from her. And also, when he went to Sinaloa another time, he went to have lunch with them. And there are public pictures about that all over the newspapers, all over the media. And we cannot forget that when the Mexican police capture Ovidio Guzman, that's El Chapo's son, the president let him go. So that pretty much says who's in control. That's terrible. Yeah, I can I can feel the anger in your voice. So let's let's have a hypothetical here. Let's say that um, you're in charge of advising Lopez Obrador or or the next Mexican president on what they should do about the cartel situation. What what do you want to see done? What do you think is the right policy decision going forward there? The right policy decision would be to legalize drugs. If violence is escalating because drug related violence, we have to legalize them. Because when they are illegal, they're in the shadow. The state doesn't know or cannot control the movements. Once they become legal, the state can take action. And also, from an economic perspective, there's the, that's the only economy that is likely to grow in the next years. Uh when quarantine started, drug consumption uh, went up around a, around 35% around the world. I, I hadn't, I have to confess, I had not thought of the legalization of drugs as a, as a potential stimulus measure for, for COVID-19. Uh, well, what can I say? You have to think outside the box. I guess, but you don't think that there would be like a, a lot of violence but between the cartels that would be trying to hold on to their position if it was legalized? Or would there be some kind of general amnesty and you would try and bring the cartels into society and not try and, and arrest them and, and break them up? Of course, you have to take legal actions. If you want to just forgive the drug cartels, we might get into some uh, discussions just like Colombia did when they try to forgive the fact. We cannot forgive them after all the harm they have done to Mexican society. I mean, just last month on June 7th, we had the highest, uh, we had the most violent day we have had this year with 
211 murders, most of them being related to drug violence. So we have to do something about that. I'm going to ask you an impossible question to answer, but I can't resist. Why do you think Mexico is this way? I mean, I, I feel like going back over a century, Mexico has always had the, the central government in Mexico City has always had problems enforcing its authority throughout the country. I mean, going back all the way to Juarez, who Lopez Obrador really admires, even he couldn't bring sort of the bandits that were in the countryside to heal and couldn't bring Mexican authority over the whole country. Is it geographic? Is it cultural? Is it about economic inequality? I mean, why do you think that that this is happening in Mexico and why has it become such a problem for Mexico that has been so hard to solve for all these years? I think geography and culture have a lot to do with this. First of all, when you look at our country, we have many mountains. We have Sierra Madre Occidental, Sierra Madre Oriental, and they divide the country. So if we're in Mexico City and violence erupts in Guerrero, our army takes a lot of time to get there. So it's really difficult to keep a country safe when you have such a geographical division. Also, I think it's because of culture. We don't have a culture of service in Mexico. There are few, very few public servants that acknowledge they are here to serve the people because most of them only serve themselves. And when they only serve themselves, they don't bring the development or the infrastructure necessary for a country to, to get progress going on. For example, um, we don't have as much schools as we need. We don't have as much public light as we need to keep people safe and out of, out of the dark. Uh, we don't have enough money to keep our police uh, forces with high technology army. Most of the cases with the drug cartels, drug cartels are better equipped than our police forces. Yeah, there was a great article. I can't remember if it was in Reuters or the New York Times, but there, there was this article in some American paper uh, in the past week about how the cartels are literally putting their own telecoms equipment on like 4G and 5G towers so that they have their own like cellular cellular networks that the that operate independent of the government. And that if somebody goes and services the tower and accidentally turns off the, the cartel network, the cartels will come and demand that they turn it back on, which is just, it's mind boggling here to even imagine that sort of thing happening in the United States. Yeah, of course it is. Um, they, they have major money incomes and they pay no taxes. That's a great business. <laughs> Well, look, take a step back for me for a second and let's imagine wh where do you think Mexico is going to be in 10 years? And let's break it into a couple parts, sort of politically, where do you think Mexico is going to be in 10 years? Economically, where do you see Mexico in 10 years? And geopolitically, wh where do you think Mexico is going to be in the world in 10 years? I think uh, geopolitically is bigger. I think Mexico is going to get um, more relevant as an economic outsourcing country. If we take into account that Mexican population is quite young and most people in developed countries are getting older, they're gonna have to be major arrangements to keep those economies women and Mexico might be 
uh, a source. Also, I think uh, Mexico is going to get more relevant uh, when it comes to robotics or technology. Uh, we have satellites started being tested, deployed. We already started viewing uh, Mexican cars in Querétaro. Also, planes are starting to be built. So that's a major technology development. But when it comes to the economy, if we carry on the way we are with this coronavirus, I think we're going back in time. Because our economy is not going to start recovering until mid-2022. And that is being hopeful and taking into account that we might already have a vaccine for coronavirus at the end of this year. But if that doesn't happen, I think economies, not only Mexico, in the world are going to get in trouble. Uh, when it comes to uh, our national politics, I think we're going back to the pre-system, what with Morena instead. The opposition is destroyed, and the only opposition is the only opposition within the hegemonic party. Hmm. Well, that that last point, in some ways, is the most uh, is the most remarkable. So, I I take it is is Lopez Obrador president in ten years' time, or is 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 his handpicked successor president in ten years' time? I mean, is 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 Morena gonna is Morena gonna hold on to power like that in that way? I think that if if he if he's not trying to get reelected, he's gonna be the power behind the throne, just like we have during the Maximato centuries ago. So I think he's much likely to control who is in power and where the country is going. Man, that's a that, that's a depressing thought, Stephanie. I was hoping that we were gonna have some uplifting thoughts here, but I have to say that your your thoughts on Mexico's future is not they're not particularly hopeful. Um, let, let me get you out of here on this. Uh, so, so last question, I always like to throw a curveball at the end. I guess I shouldn't use baseball metaphors because who, nobody even likes baseball and nobody's playing sports anyway, but I, I, I like to always ask an unexpected question at the end. And so my question for you, and then of course, feel free to ask me anything you want to talk about that we didn't hit on, but I wanted to ask you, who is your favorite, um, Mexican leader in history? Which, which Mexican leader do you admire the most? And if you don't admire any of them, you can say that too. But I'm wondering when you look back at the history of Mexico's leaders, who do you think was a good one? Who was someone that you wish was was managing the affairs of state right now that you would feel comfortable if they were president right now? Well, I don't know if he will fit for this very moment, but I, I really like what Porfirio Diaz did hmm. when he was president. He built a lot of institutions. Our economy was getting stronger. And we were developing science and, and trying to be a global power. Now. We are years away from that. Yes, although the flip side of Diaz is that uh, I don't know that you can call Mexico a democracy during that time period. He was certain. I mean, how long was he president? Over, over 30 years, at least, probably, right? Yes. And that's where the Mexican Revolution started, because he didn't want to let go of power. That's the dark side of Diaz. But if we look at the right side, most of Mexico's main street were built during that time. Most of major of Mexico's major uh, touristic buildings, such as the Palacio de Bellas Artes, for example, were built during that time. So Mexico was somehow flourishing. 
do you th- I guess that that leads to another question that I have then do you think that I mean it, it seems that so often in Mexican history you you have these sort of dominant leaders who rule over the situation for a long time and then they give way to another dominant leader like that um is is Mexico I mean is Mexican democracy functioning is Mexico ready for democracy or or does Mexico need some kind of strong leader like that do you think that the system can even work um the way that it is currently going because it sounds to me like you're saying that it's not working the way that it's going I think Mexican democracy has still a long way to go. We have so much work to do because we haven't gone to the stage when we have stopped being just inhabitants to being citizens. Hmm. If you take a look at uh, all the elections, they have really a low percent, percent of attendance. Most Mexican people don't care about democracy. Most Mexican people are not aware of the rights. Most Mexican people didn't finish primary school. Hmm. So there's a lot of work to do because if we don't have an educated society, we are not going to be able to make the right decisions. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in, and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.